right, we're going to be in 1 Kings. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 21. Back into our story uh, looking at Elijah and Ahab. After taking a few weeks to kind of look at a bigger picture, we're back in looking at Elijah and Ahab in 1 Kings 21. I've got myself a new preaching table up here. And uh, it's kind of a big deal. I had the other one for like 11 years. And it's like getting a new car. Got to test drive this thing. We'll see how it goes. The, the, the last few weeks, we, we had a chance to sit down and watch a, um, uh, watch a movie, sat down and watched it with Abby. She wasn't impressed, but it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, we got a chance to sit down and watch Dead Poets Society. I don't know how many of you guys like that movie or seen that movie, but uh, there, there's, a, there's a, a part in that movie, kind of a, a powerful part, m- memorable part. Of course, there's the Carpe Diem, Seize the Day line that is uh, what the movie is so well known for, but he also... Uh, Robin Williams' character quotes also in there from a poem by Walt Whitman that's called O oh Me, O oh Life. This is the, the famous scene where, uh, where Robin Williams' character says that poetry is not for expressing emotion or for being creative. It is to woo women. That is the scene that this is from. Uh, and he quotes this, this, uh, this poem. The final couple of lines of this poem is that you are here, that life exists in identity, that the powerful play goes on. And you may contribute a verse. And he goes on to ask, uh, after reading this, this poem, what will your verse be? It's a powerful moment in the film, and he is imploring his high school students to consider purpose in life and, and what they are supposed to do with their life and to spur them on to do things and to, uh, to action. And he says, what will your verse be? makes them ask the question, what am I adding to this world? What will I do in this life that will matter and that will affect others? What what story will my life tell? I also recently had a chance to make my way back through the soundtrack of Hamilton. And the opening line of the final song from this Broadway musical, if you guys have heard it, uh, it builds to this reality, and it, and it says this here. It says, let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story. That is two very contrasting and powerful themes. Two narratives that seem to kind of run into each other. They've kind of been bouncing around in my head over the last few weeks. Like, how, how, which one of those is, is, is the one that I kind of want to take hold of? Which one of those is the one that I want to be able to learn from? Which one of those is the one that, that I want to kind of use to spur me on? Do we get the right to, to tell our own story? Do we get the right to write our own story? Do we get to determine what our verse will be uh, while we are here on on this earth, do we get a chance to, to determine that? Or is Lynn Manuel right when, whenever he writes and sings, We have no control over who tells our story? Our story is really beyond our own control. We are at the mercy of fate, we are at the mercy of history, we are at the mercy of those that came before us and will come after us. I don't know how much you think about that kind of stuff. I don't know how much, how much you, you think through it. I'm not sure that, that all that kind of stuff needs to be at the front of our mind at all times. But I think that those questions are worthy of our attention and our thought. And this morning we're going to, to look at the story that has four primary characters in it. One gets to tell their story exactly how they want it told. One gets to contribute a verse, but I'm not really sure it's one that he would have written for himself. 
One contributes a verse to history that is so unexpected you almost aren't quite sure what to do with it, and one that has truly no control over his verse that he contributes. And for all the world, it seems as though his verse is destined to be forgotten to history. Each of these verses that they contribute can teach us a lot about ourselves and a lot about what it means for us to kind of make our way through this life. So 1 Kings 21, and we're going to continue on looking at this prophets versus kings. Our guy Elijah is back on the scene, and he's going to be talking with Ahab and his queen Jezebel. But before Elijah makes his way back on the scene, if you'll remember, we left him coming down from Mount Horeb where God has more or less sidelined him and said, go get Elisha and hand your ministry off to him. But before Elijah shows back up, we need to meet another guy that will play a central role in today's story, and his name is Naboth. Naboth is, uh, has two things that make him kind of stand out in this story. He has land and he has integrity. And those two things become a real big problem for Ahab. So let's, let's read about Naboth and this story that he, uh, that he is now going to be uh, unwillingly a part of. So 1 Kings 21 verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went to his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and he would eat no food. So this seems pretty, pretty simple here. Naboth is the next door neighbor to King Ahab. He happens to have a plot of land right next to the palace. Uh, and, and, and really, this is kind of like Ahab's summer residence. And Ahab looks out the window. He says, hey, that's a nice spot for me to grow some cucumbers. That is a nice spot for me to grow some peppers uh, and some tomatoes. I would like to do that right there. I'm going to go to Naboth, and I'm going to make an offer for his land. So he goes to Naboth. He says, hey, I got a deal for you. I'll pay you for this, or I'll give you another one somewhere else. Now, we're not told that whether it's a fair deal or not. The assumption is that it's totally a fair deal that, that Ahab comes and presents to uh, Naboth. But Naboth says, no, I'm good. I'm going to keep it. Well, the king is not used to really being told no. Uh, but Naboth definitely tells him no. And part of the reason why, it's not laid out here, but part of the reason that Naboth tells him no is because the law that is written tells him he can't sell it. Because the way that it's written, it's, you can go back and you can find it uh, in, in er, earlier texts, but basically the way that the law is written is that, that, that the, the uh, land is intended to pass down from generation to generation and stay within the family. It's not intended to be sold for profit. They don't want to get into a game where it's real estate trading and trying to make a lot of money. The only way that Naboth would be permitted to sell this land to somebody outside of his family is if he were in dire straits financially, and it's the only way that he could really provide for his family. Naboth wasn't in that situation. He was doing all right. He didn't need the money. He didn't need a different vineyard. The law says, hang on to your stuff because we don't want to have this kind of real estate trading where things get too expensive. We want everyone to be able to keep their land. So despite the fair, perhaps even lucrative offer from the king, Naboth says, nope, I can't do it. I can't sell. Well, this messes with Ahab. 
turns him into like a, a, literally a royal powder. He is, he is pouting about the fact that he can't have this piece of land that he wants. So he goes home, and then Jezebel has something to say about Ahab and his pouting. So verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel's basically mocking King Ahab at this point. She's coming to him and she says, what are you doing sitting here pouting? Are you a king or are you a mouse? Use your power, take it. If he won't sell it, go and take it by force. You're the king, you're in charge, you take this for yourself. She wastes no plan. Immediately, she's got a plan, and she or waste no time. And immediately, she's got a plan, and she will take care of this land for her husband, and she will make sure that this no good, weak pushover of a husband gets his land, so that he will stop pouting. So let's look at the plan that she has. Verse eight. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his, of, of his city, and the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, and they set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and take possession of it. So Jezebel doesn't fool around. She wants it. She's going to take it. Ethics, morals, justice, fear of God... None of that really matters to her. She's the one in power, and she will flex her power wherever and however she sees fit. This is why you, you, you know the term Jezebel is not a compliment for someone. Uh, it's been used to, uh, to insult and to describe scheming, conniving, uh, dirty woman, because that's exactly what Jezebel is. It's exactly what she does. She has this innocent man accused when it talks about having him sit at the head of the table. This is kind of like a, like a mock trial that he's brought before. He's drugged before this false court. He's falsely testified against, and then he is murdered. Why? Because she wants to make sure that this pansy of a husband she's got gets the land that he wanted for his tomatoes. The story is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of like innuendo to it. The, the text is pretty clear. It's, it's not complicated at all. It's a story of abused power and terrible injustice. And those in power don't think a thing about it. 
At this point in our story, it seems as though Naboth's story is one destined to be forgotten by this world. He has no heir to pass the land down to, which is what makes it available for Ahab to go and take it. The property is free and clear for Ahab. It seems as, as though Naboth's verse that he contributes to this, uh, this play, as Whitman wrote, take the, the, this verse that he contributes is, is really destined to be a verse about some forgotten, nameless, victimized fool that provided the land for Ahab's cucumbers and squash. I don't know about you, that is not the verse I'd write for myself. That's not the verse that I want to contribute to this world. So maybe in this case, Hamilton was right. In the end, you have no control who tells your story. Naboth didn't. He had no control. He's destined to be forgotten. His story is, and he is, until Elijah gets a call. So 1 Kings 21, 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. And behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut, uh, cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his, anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So Elijah comes back on, this, on the scene here. He gets a call from God and he says, Elijah, I need you to go and do something. I know Elisha is your understudy. I know Elisha is the one that I've called you to bring back, to bring into ministry, but I've got a little bit more for you to do. I'm calling you back off the bench. I need you to go back to your boy Ahab and I need you to show up and tell him these things. And Ahab's reaction is basically, oh great, you again. I thought I'd ran you off. I thought I was done with you. I thought my wife had put out a hit on you and we were done with you because you ran away like a scared little girl. I thought we were done with you, Elijah. But then Elijah lays it out for him, calls him out for his sin, prophesies to him that both he and Jezebel will be eaten by dogs, that their death will come and they will suffer the same fate as Naboth. They too will die and their dynasty will meet its end. So now at this point, we need to be asking the question, what kind of story do you expect going forward? If you don't know the rest of this story, how do you expect the rest of this to go? Are Ahab and Jezebel's stories written at this point? Are their scripts written and they just need to kind of finish out the verse? And what about the story of Elijah? He thought he was done he thought Elijah was going to, or Elisha was going to be coming in and doing the dirty work from here on out. 
but now God has called him back into ser- to service. I don't think Elijah thought he'd be back. I don't think he, he thought he would see Ahab again. He'd thrown his tantrum on Mount Horeb. He had said that I'm the only, the only godly Israelite left. I'm the only one that has escaped. Clearly, Naboth proves that that is not the case because Naboth is full of integrity and will not sell his land because that's what the law of the Lord requires. But then God calls him back. And Elijah, I think, is evidence for us that sometimes we might get to write our own story. And sometimes we may simply be a part of a bigger story that we would not have written ourselves if we had been fully in control. But God calls us to live it out anyway. Elijah wanted to see God lifted high in a fiery display for all to see. Elijah wanted to see all of Israel fall to their knees whenever the fire came down. And instead, what he got was an after-the-fact pronouncement of judgment on a king and a queen that have forgotten God. He was faithful, but it wasn't the story that he wanted to write. It is, however, the story God wanted him to write because God had a bigger picture in mind, both for the nation of Israel and I think for you and I to be able to sit back and read today. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. But before that, let's see what happens with Ahab. Let's see if what we assume about Ahab, we already know how bad of a king he is. Let's see if his script continues as we would expect. And I love how it starts here in verse 25. It says, this is in parentheses, and it says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. So it reminds us of what we were told about Ahab whenever Ahab first ascended to the throne. This dude is a bad dude. There is no, kings as, no king as evil as Ahab, is what we're told. He was a bad guy. But then we have verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, the words of, of judgment pronounced by Elijah, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. I'll bet you didn't see that coming. Ahab, this wicked king, the most wicked to ever sit on the throne of Israel, the most evil king that there is, confronted with his sin, and he does what? Does he reject God? Does he kill the prophet? Does he ignore the warning? Nope, none of those. He repents. He has sorrow, godly sorrow, over his sin. It's so shocking, you almost have to go back and read the paragraph again to make sure you understood it. Ahab actually repents. He turns back. The text gives us no reason to think that this is not genuine. Ahab repents and God shows mercy. At least temporarily. He delays the punishment that was promised him. 
Uh, and let's be clear about a few things. I don't want to misunderstand some things here. Uh, Ahab's repentance may be genuous, genuine, but it's not fully sufficient. At the end of the day, he still has uh, Naboth's land, and he's still growing his garden, right? He, he, there's no evidence that he gives any of that back. In fact, we know for a fact that he doesn't. He keeps those things. So at the end of the day, he still has what, it was, what was unjustly gained. Naboth is still dead. Ahab makes no restitution to anyone. You remember what Zacchaeus did whenever, uh, whenever he finally got a chance to see Jesus and talk with Jesus? Whenever he came out from that meeting with Jesus, he comes back, and Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and he says, anyone that I've defrauded, anyone that I've done wrong, I will pay them back fourfold. So his repentance is met by uh, restitution and restoration and making things right. None of that happens here. So while Ahab's repentance is, is, is seemingly genuine, it, it's ultimately wholly insufficient for what he has done. His judgment is still coming. But this morning, I, I think this is good for us to remember. Every day, you and I come across uh, come across people, and there's a couple of things that are probably true about those people. They pro- and this, may be, this is probably true about you on some level as well. They, they probably think they've already written most of their story. No matter what age they are, they probably think that they have some idea what the verse is that they're going to contribute to this world. And the only thing that's left before them is just kind of the reading of the script. Just doing what is laid out for them to do. They think they know how it will go. The other thing that's probably true about them is that whenever we come across them, we, you know what, I'm just going to put this in the first person. I have probably already judged them to the point that I think I know what their story is in my head. And I, I have really, all that I have left for them is for them to play out the script that I've written for them. I don't know what verse they plan on writing, but I've got a pretty good idea what verse they're going to write. The story of Ahab, as despicable as he is, tells us that, that neither of those things is really true. It was true for Jezebel. There's no repentance to be found for her. There's no kind of plot twist coming anywhere in here. Jezebel, Jezebel never repents. Her story goes exactly as you would expect. But for Ahab, there was. His story did not go according to script. You and I have no idea what God can do in someone's life. We have no idea what God can do. If the most despicable, evil king in the history of Israel, who we are told explicitly by the text on multiple occasions just how wicked he is, if that guy can repent, then you just never know about the guy that's standing across from you. Whether that guy is somebody you just met, or if it's a guy that you're looking at in the mirror. Our stories are never fully written until they're done. Don't miss out on the stories that God is yet to write just because you think you know how the story ends. You don't. Don't assume the stories are just scripts waiting to be read. It's never too late for a story to take a different turn. 
Some of you need to hear that because that's how you see people and that's how you treat people. Some of you need to hear that because that's how you see your own life and you think you know how it's going to go and you think you have an idea of who you are. And some of you believe that there's no chance that, you, that, that God is going to hear anything that you have because of who you are and what you've done. I don't know who the, how this hits you this morning. But Ahab is proof that God isn't finished with people until God is finished with people. The story can always take a different turn. It's far too common for us religious people to assume that we know a story is going to end. And we give up hope way too soon. It's far too common for non-religious people to do just the same. To assume nothing will ever change. But the story of the gospel is that that change is the story that God loves to write. So let's see how the stories of Ahab and Jezebel end. Did Elijah just write their story for them? Did he just give them a script to play out? For dogs to lick up their blood? Or is there another one to be written? Verse 37. This fast forward is just a little... I'm sorry, 1 Kings 22, so... Chapter 22, verse 37. This fast forwards a bit in the story. We have the story that Chris told us a few weeks ago about Micaiah and his interactions with uh, the king. We fast forward just a little bit, a few years in the future from where we were when Elijah initially delivers the prophecy. It says, So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. So there's Ahab's verse, summarized for us nicely here in 1 Kings. It's not a pretty one. Even with his repentance, his sins brought him to ruin and told his story. His repentance was a surprise. It brought him a temporary stay, a show of mercy from God. But his sins would ultimately find him out and be his punishment. The dogs would have their day. So what about Jezebel? Fast forward to 2 Kings now, chapter 9. In 2 Kings chapter 9, you fast forward a bit in the story. Let's read what it says here in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. So Jehu is kind of the, the, the king that's come to reign and to, to, to take his place here in this story. Uh, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head. And looked out the window. So she got dressed up. She put on her makeup. She wants to impress this new guy that is to rule. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murder of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses. And they trampled on her. And then he went in and he ate and he drank and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. 
And when they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of the Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. That is graphic. That is intense. And it's clear as day. Jezebel got exactly what Elijah said she was going to get. Eaten by dogs. That's Jezebel's verse that she contributes to this play. Carried out to the letter. She's a footnote to the destruction of sin and the justice of God. Sometimes people surprise us. Sometimes they do exactly what we think. Jezebel never heeded the warnings from Yahweh. Her lust for power eventually saw her thrown out a window and eaten by dogs. And there's one more part to the story to read. Just a couple of paragraphs up from what I just read in verse 21, 2 Kings 9, 21. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot. And they went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. This property that they fought over, that was ill-gotten by Ahab and Jezebel. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? And then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging not to Ahab, but to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Naboth's vineyard became a garden for Ahab and then a cemetery for one of Ahab's sons. Where Ahab gathered his vegetables was now a place for his son to be buried. It's almost like how Haman in the story of Esther builds the gallows that he will eventually be hung on himself. The site of treachery becomes the site of justice. Naboth's story was destined to be forgotten. He was a nobody with no heir and a nice plot of land. Powerless and oppressed people don't usually get to write their own story. It's the nature of the world that we live in. They don't even ask the question who tells their story because their story is so often so oppressed, there is seemingly no story to be told. And this type of oppression, this type of powerless comes in all forms and fashions. This is not some kind of like woke gospel or anything like this. This is the reality of sin. People with power will almost, not, let me say this right, people with power will have the opportunity and their sin will often lead to them oppressing people without power. 
And now that can happen because of social class. It can happen because of race. It can happen because of money. It can happen because of gender. It can happen because of geography. It can happen for all kinds of reasons. But, but men will always create systems of power and discrimination. Always. And it is always the job of the people of God to call out the sin and to speak up on behalf of the oppressed, just like Elijah did. And one thing we can know for sure is that God has not forgotten one single story. He knows each of us by name. He knows our plight, and He knows our struggles. He knows. He knows. Verses of, of, that, that have been contributed that none of us in here will ever know. Stories that are forgotten to time, forgotten to the world, forgotten to those that were even around them because they have been so silenced. We will never know them. This world will never know their name. They will never know what they needed, what they wanted, what they stood for, who they were. We will never know their story. What they contributed, as far as we can see, is nothing. God has not forgotten one story. He does not forget the story of the oppressed. Naboth's story was not forgotten. And God's justice was not too late for Naboth either. It can be easy to read this and to, to come to this conclusion. I mean, after all, what good does it do for the dogs to lick up the blood of Ahab and to, to tear apart Jezebel? Naboth is dead and his land is gone. What good does that do Naboth? His integrity got him killed and God never bothered to stand up for him. But justice never comes too late. It just comes in God's time, on God's terms, and for God's purposes. You see, Naboth was an innocent man who lived by faith, who obeyed God's law, who was falsely accused, who was drugged before, before a false court, convicted of a false crime, and murdered on false pretenses. In the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about how Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, another innocent man murdered in envy. And I'm here to tell you that Naboth's blood speaks a better word too. Like Naboth, Jesus was righteous. But not just in particular matters of the law, but in every way he was righteous. Jesus, too, lived by faith, was dragged before a false court under false charges, falsely convicted, and murdered under false pretenses. But Jesus wasn't some vineyard owner. He was the Son of God and the author and perfecter of our faith. Justice did not come too late then either. It arrived right on time as Jesus took on the sins of the world. And Jesus did what only he could do because of what he did. Our stories can be written totally differently today. The, the verse that we should contribute, the, the idea that, that we are in charge of the verse we, contri we contribute is such a kind of a, an individualistic idea. It's not one that really holds water with all of Scripture. It's not a bad idea to think about what you want to be and who you want to be and what you want your life to matter for. But the reality is that we're not really writing this story fully ourselves. Do you want to know what our story uh, should, that we contribute to this world should essentially be? Here's, how, here's what my verse should be. Here's Tony Walls. He was a sinner. 
He fought against God and his kingdom. God is just and Tony is no more. And his punishment was well deserved. That's the verse that I should contribute. No more than that. But instead, the story that I get to tell is one of grace and mercy and repentance and restoration and celebration. This is the Easter story. And instead, the verse can be this. Here is Tony Walls. He is a sinner, and God is just and righteous, but the cross changed the rest of his story. Now he is made righteous by the blood of Jesus, and the punishment that he deserved has been absorbed by the Son of God. That is now my story. That is the story I contribute to the glory of God. That is what I want my story to be. Not about me and what I gave and what I contributed, but a testimony to the grace of God that He changed my story. That I was not forgotten, cast off, and no more, but instead I was remembered, redeemed, and saved by the blood of Jesus. That is my story. It was changed. What is your story? What do you want your story to be? What verse will you contribute? It would be a shame if we spent our whole lives trying to write a verse, carefully crafting a verse, carefully structuring a verse. If we spent our whole life to write a verse that within 50 years, nobody's going to remember. Maybe 100 years, if you're notable. And then it's forgotten. Few of us would be remembered beyond that. But let's say we do something truly remarkable. Let's say we do something truly incredible. It would be a shame for us to give our lives to write a story that will be forgotten by the world within a thousand years. Let's say what you do is remembered for a thousand years. You will still be forgotten. But the story that God is writing is a story that lasts forever. So by all means, hear me when I say this. Strive with all your might to write a beautiful verse while you are here on this earth. Strive to make a difference. Strive to change. Strive to be a beautiful person who loves and cares for others. Strive for all those things and to write that verse. That is good and right for us to do that. God calls us to beauty like that. We should do that. But don't neglect the reality that the story we're writing about what happens after this life will go on for eternity. It goes on forever. Write your story, but make sure that the story that you're writing is one that, that focuses on the story that goes on forever. Make your verse be a verse that, that isn't about the, the glory that you bring to this world and the beauty that you bring to this world, but is about what God has done and the glory that he deserves. The grace of God is that any of us can change, any of us can turn. Our story isn't written. Our story isn't final. We're not just, we're not just actors playing out a script. The cross and the resurrection give us a chance to change our story. Don't walk out of here 
committed to a story that is so temporary, that is so small, that is, so, that is just so limited to this kingdom and this world. Make your story about the glory of God. Anything else would be insufficient. Anything else would be unworthy of him. So make it about his glory. And that will always bring us back to the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is our confession that we desperately want to write our own stories. And that none of us want our stories to be told by someone more powerful than us, someone more popular than us, someone richer than us, someone somehow better than us. We want to tell our own stories and to write our own stories. And Father, it is our confession that most of the time, those stories that we want to write are nothing but an exercise in vanity. Father, I pray that this morning we would, of all things, follow the example of Ahab, that we would humble ourselves before you and repent of that vanity. And that we would leverage the rest of our lives from this day forward, that everyone here in this room would leverage our lives to write a verse that doesn't bring glory to our name, but brings glory to yours. And Father, we rejoice, we celebrate that the only way that could even be conceived is if you show us grace and you give us mercy. Father, I pray now for the oppressed in this world whose, whose voice we will never hear, whose name we will never know, whose verse will seem so insignificant, the world will march right on and they will be forgotten. Father, I pray and I trust that you have not forgotten them. And I pray that we would be as faithful as Elijah, that we would speak up and we would stand up where we see that. Give us the conviction and the boldness and the humility to trust in your grace and to speak up where we must. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.